to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast. This week, coming to you live from Philadelphia. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Chizinski, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Andy. My fact is that the star of the film Candyman, where a character has bees coming out of his mouth, negotiated a $1,000 bonus for every time he got stung. (laughs) He ended up with (laughs) $23,000. Wow. Yeah. How bad is it to be stung by a bee? Do you think you'd be deliberately angering the bees so that you got a few more stings and a bit Mm. more money? Or not? I would. Yeah? But that says more about me than it does about... (laughs) um, (laughs) Yeah, although in the mouth, I imagine it would be a lot more painful than normal. So th- uh, this is Candyman, this is uh, Tony Todd. This is a kind of cult horror film. And one of the inspirations was from the Johnny Carson show, where there was a man called Norman Gary, who was a B-based performer, and he had an, he had an act where he played the clarinet while covered in bees. And oh. people loved this. And he then became the bee wrangler, the official bee person on Candyman. Yeah. And I think it's him and Tony Todd... They're the only two people to have done all three Candyman films is the star and the bee guy. Wow. Can you explain, can you explain what Candyman is? Because I haven't seen it. So. It's, uh, uh, Dan, you watched it uh, as yeah, a child. Yeah. It's a horror film. Um, there's a guy who has a hook, and if you say his name into a mirror five times, he kills you. So, you, in theory, you shouldn't do that, but people, they do. And, they? Yeah. How many times have we said it so far on the stage? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but it was written by Clive Barker, the great horror oh, yeah, writer. Yeah, yeah. I think he did Hellraiser as yeah. well. And the bees that they use, actually, there, there is a logic. It wasn't bees that were just ready and furious and waiting to sting. Um, they made sure that the bees were only 12 hours old. So imagine you've just been born <laughs> and you're suddenly in a Hollywood movie. It's, <laughs> it's incredible. And uh, so, yeah, so they, they went into the mouth. And um, the idea is that the stings wouldn't be sharp enough. Even when he was stung, it wouldn't have the sting of a, say, 14-hour our old bee. Um, <laughs> and once uh, they'd done each take, the bees would be vacuumed up using a tiny bee vacuum. Did you know that you can get a no. bee vacuum cleaner? What? Yeah. How's that different from a normal vacuum cleaner? I think it's just a little bit kinder on the bees, I would guess. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a mini one. Like it was, yeah. It's yeah, different because it's, it's a bee size. Not like a bee would use it as a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they'd be sucked up and then return to their dressing room for the, you know, sort of to await the next take. Wow. Yeah. They didn't have their own dressing room, did they? Do you mean a, bo- a wooden box? In the <laughs> I think, yeah. Oh, you've I... seen our dressing room tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's full of bees. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, the main thing is with this bee bearding thing, which is what the clarinetists did. Okay, so what you do is you get a queen bee and you put it in a little cage by your face, and then all of the other bees kind of come along because they like the queen bee so much, and they hang around your face. And the way that you get them off normally is you spend maybe a couple of hours getting them on, so you have a massive bee beard, and then you just jump in the air, and when you land, all the bees just disappear. No, they don't disappear. <laughs> they just stop holding on to your face. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Does it, and does that not uh, irritate them? Um, a little bit. You might get stung a few times, but yeah. then you walk backwards and someone's kind of firing um, smoke in your face so that they're getting a bit sleepy, a little oh. bit drowsy, and then you can get away. That's so crafty. Isn't it cool? really? that's, that's so weird, because Virginia Madsen, who I think was um, the lead 
female character yeah. in the film said it used to take ages for the, the, their bee wranglers to sweep the bees up. Well, yeah, because what they did with them is they kind of smeared their face in pheromone. Yeah. And so the bees just really did not want to leave them. Yeah. She said that um, it basically, you have pheromones on them, so they're all in love with you. Oh, all the bees. Aww. That's nice, isn't it? She was allergic to bees, I think. She was very slightly, wasn't yeah. she? The director said, no, you're not. You're just afraid. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, this guy, Norman Gary, the bee wrangler, he has a Guinness World Record that is obviously bee-related, but it is for most bees in a mouth. Wow, really? Yeah. Any, any guesses? Um, I would say about 14. 14? 14, 14, 14, yeah. 14. 65. 65. 65. Um, yeah, um, 66. Uh, okay. <laughs> wow. By an incredibly dubious method, Dan wins. Um, <laughs> but you're still out. It's, he had 109 live bees in his mouth at one time. And you have to... You get a sponge soaked in sugar... And they like that, obviously, so they always seek that out. So that's to, you can sort of train them to go where you want them to go by that, with that sponge. So then he um, put it in his mouth. You have to close your mouth for 10 seconds for the record to be valid. So they're all in there. And then you put a mesh cage up to your lips. You blow them all into the cage at the same time. Then you close the bag. And then you, to, to do the count, you have to allow them to escape one by one while you really? tally them. Because until then, you don't know if you've got the record because you've just got a load of bees in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier to count them out than it is to count them in, I guess. Yeah, I yeah. see that. <laughs> hey, I was looking into horror movies generally because oh, yeah. I, I realised I just don't know much about sort of like the behind the scenes of movies. I uh, found this really fun fact, which is The Omen, the movie The Omen. So Damien, who is, it's now the classic name for, yeah. So he wasn't meant to be called Damien. Oh, no, really? Yeah, originally, the screenwriter, David Seltzer, he wanted to name the Antichrist Domlin, um, D-O-M-L-I-N. And the reason he wanted to call him Domlin is because he knew a Domlin who was a totally obnoxious brat, he said. <laughs> it was a friend, it was the, the child of a friend of his. And it was his wife, the screenwriter's wife, who went, you can't fucking do this to Domlin. <laughs> immortalize him as the antichrist in a movie it's not they're not gonna go well it might be another domlin yeah exactly <laughs> so it's damien but yeah it should have been cool. domlin wow yeah. but now all the damien's get that it seems unfair but at least there are all the damien's there's not just one damien in the world <laughs> it's true, yeah. who knows it's about him they used to have a lot of horror movies with insects in like this one candy man with the bees mm. uh, with it between 1966 and 1978 there were six major films featuring bees as the main horror in that film. Wow. Uh, one of them was called The Swarm, and the Sunday Times has said it's the worst film ever made. Um, Richard Velt in the Wilmington Morning Star said, The Swarm may not be the worst movie ever made. I'll have to see them all, to be sure. <laughs> but it's certainly as bad as any I've ever seen. <laughs> all the actors involved in this fiasco should be ashamed. <laughs> Apparently, it's absolutely awful. It's got Michael Caine in it. Um, it cost them tons. Of, it was really expensive. The budget was like 20 million. It came out in the same year as Star Wars, um, which was made for a lot less money. And it was basically about a load of killer bees. Now, the American Bee Association decided to do a cease and desist to the swarm for defaming the American honeybee. <laughs> and as a result, at the end of the movie, there's a disclaimer saying that the killer bees in the film bear no resemblance to real crop pollinating honeybees. <laughs> That is I bet so they good. bore some resemblance. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was reading about the swarm too. It does sound absolutely amazing. It's two hours and forty minutes long, which is hefty. 
Michael Caine said that he only did it because his mother needed a house to live in. Um, it's quite sweet. But also, he, he, they, kept, they kept finding all the way through the film, because they, they, they filmed it with nearly a million beats. So it was a big, like, huge cast, uh, basically. Um, huge cast? What, the credits at the end? <laughs> B1, B2, B3. But the cast and the crew, they kept finding little yellow dots on their clothing because of all the bees. And Michael Caine would eat that uh, before eventually being informed that that was not honey he was eating, but that was just bee excrement <laughs> that he'd casually been snacking on throughout the filming. Wow. Yeah. That's when you do need a bee with a little vacuum cleaner, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> the cleaner bee. <laughs> Another horror film which involves sort of animals going nuts was The Birds. And that, they had a bird trainer in The Birds. And in fact, he's a guy called Ray Berwick. And he trained all birds in all films that you've seen with birds in for about 20 years. So like the Birdman of Alcatraz was another big one. And um, he had such cool tricks. So, you know, if you, I don't know if you've seen The Birds, but uh, there are lots of scenes where the birds like, fly towards the lens of the camera and attack it. And they put meat in the lenses of the camera. So the birds would fly at oh, it. Cool. Wow. But if you read, it was quite weird because there are no special effects in that. So they just had these birds attacking them all the time. And... The lead actor in it said, it was Rod Taylor who was the lead actor, who said there was one particular raven who absolutely hated him. And ravens do take against people. We've discussed this before. So he said he'd get up, go on to set every day. This raven would immediately turn up next to him and go, and then start (laughs) just biting him manically. And every day on set, he'd say, look, is Archie working today? Archie (laughs) being the raven. (laughs) And he'd always turn up. And it was really sad because Tippi Hedren, who was his co-star also uh, had a relationship with a raven, but she had a really nice one. So a raven befriended her, loved her. They couldn't actually use that raven in the film because it was too nice. But <laughs> Imagine if you watch the movie and they're all attacking her, but one of them is just kind of on her shoulder. Just... Yeah. <laughs> leave him alone! Leave him alone! Uh, okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is my fact. Uh, my fact this week is that As well as using crash test dummies, Volvo tests its cars with a crash test moose. Mm. They have a crash test moose, which as far as I can tell is called Moosus. Um, (laughs) So this is done in uh, Sweden. uh, They have a 790-pound moose surrogate, and they make it from a stack of 114 rubber discs. And the idea is that it's sort of sitting in front of a car. So rather, it's not the moose inside the car as a crash test dummy. It's sitting in a distance, and they ram the car into it, and it splays itself all over the car. So yeah. it's just to show the damage that's being done to the car. Actually, it's really, it's really important, isn't it? Because if you're driving along and there's an animal in the way, a lot of people say, really, the best thing to do is not to swerve out of the way because you might hit a tree or another car. You basically should keep going. Mm. But with a moose, you definitely shouldn't do that. <laughs> and the reason being, I'm sure people here know, but basically they're, they've got spindly legs and a massive big fuck-off body. Mm. And so you go into those legs and they just, like matchsticks, just go and then the body just hits you at the right height to yeah. go right into you. And it's really, really dangerous. There is amazing footage of the crash tests happening and it's, yeah, the top of the car just gets taken out, basically. But there are, I think there are, yeah, did you say there are two of these? No, I, I, there I thought there were t- Only two on the planet, but they are both in Sweden, basically. Mm. Well, you do need it in Sweden because that's where they have a lot of moose, of course. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I th- Yeah, yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's a very good idea. I'm surprised there isn't one in Canada, to be honest. Yeah, you yeah. think so. But um, the thing with moose in Sweden is there are so many moose in Sweden that if you're travelling across a highway, you will pass within a thousand feet of a moose every 23 seconds on average. Whoa. Whoa. But it's just one moose and he's really fast. 
Oh, isn't that amazing? That's yeah. incredible. They do have really cool... So there's a place in uh, rural Virginia called the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, and it's their testing center. And it's where they do a lot of uh, crash testing for cars. But they occasionally will have sort of fun um, derbies between different cars. Well, what do you mean? I've really oversold that. Basically... (laughs) I wasn't even that excited about it. it. (laughs) Well, for their 50th birthday, they had a grudge match between a 1959 Bel Air and a 2009 Malibu. And what do you mean they just crash into each other? Yeah, yeah. It was to show how much safer cars are these days because the beautiful old 1950s car, the whole front just really crumples and the the other one doesn't. Wow. It's a good news story in many ways. You have died in style, haven't you? In that nice old car. I guess so. But they really had to persuade people that safety was a good idea for cars. Like, like deaths in car accidents kept creeping up and up and up and the car industry kept saying, God, yeah, it's awful, but what are we going to do about it? And... (laughs) They really had to persuade them. So Ford introduced a car in 1956 which had a steering wheel where the steering wheel, if you hit something, the steering wheel column would deform on impact. This is a good thing because it means you don't get hit in the middle of the chest by a spike of metal, basically. The car was not popular. Despite being sold with that, it was very much outsold by other cars which had very dangerous steering columns. Ah. Do you know the first crash test dummies were live humans? So they... So there was this, uh, this happened a few times, actually, but from like the 1950s, they started testing uh, like the crash impact on human bodies. And there was a researcher called Lawrence Patrick, and he basically volunteered himself. And he made the point that uh, actually that, you know, people have been talking about using inanimate objects or things like the dummies we have today. But you can crash a dummy into a car as many times as you like and go, oh, look, it's really dented here and its head's exploded and foot fell off but you don't actually know what that would mean if it was a live human you don't actually know if the dummy's dead so like, right. but would this kill a human <laughs> and so right. he um so this guy from 1960 to 1975 was a human crash test dummy and he used to do things like um he took a 50 pound metal pendulum to the chest repeatedly uh, and that was to test the steering column. So he used to break ribs and things like that. God. Um, part of his job was hurling his knee repeatedly against a metal bar. That's amazing. Uh, oh. Yeah, he took over 400 deceleration rides to that, and that's where you sort of simulate the feeling of a crash. And yeah, it sounds horrendous. And him and his students would lie down, and they'd have stuff like what's called a gravity impactor, where you'd have to be lying down, and you had kind of this like metal rod suspended above your cheek, and then it would just jab you in the cheek. It would be like a robot jab you repeatedly and harder and harder in the uh. cheek to see how much you could take. And once he said he couldn't take it anymore, they went, well, let's make cars that don't inflict more than that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But let's bring it right up to that point. <laughs> wow. And he was, that guy was Lawrence Patrick, you say? Yeah. And it was one of his students called Harold Mertz who went on to develop the first, or the standard crash test dummy, right? Mm. So it was based on all that kind of stuff. Oh, wow, because yeah. he had such a traumatic experience here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dummies, are, they are getting older. The We're all getting older, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> who are getting older? The dummies. They're okay. being made to be older now. Oh, okay. they're made older, as in when they're first... Oh, right. Yeah. Well, because how does that work? As in the bones aren't as strong? They're or? a bit more fragile, basically, because okay. people are getting older. Again, back to your point, James, we're all getting older. But uh, drivers, drivers are getting... Uh, Society is ageing, so, you know, the crash test dummies which simulate, uh, you know, a strapping young person in their prime 
uh, and not a realistic way of simulating what's happening if you're driving and you're 120 years old. No. You know. And fatter as well, they're getting, aren't they? Because yeah. we're getting fatter. Or, and sort of more varied. There's this problem with dummies, and it happens with all technology, where it says uh, the standard dummy's been made for the average man, and so then we've proven that uh, that's, that's how strong this car is. And it's always a man, and it's always Western man, and they've finally clocked onto the fact that not everyone on Earth is a Western man. <laughs> and so obviously, like women tend to be lighter, different parts of their body, a bit weaker. And so now they've finally started making dummies that are like vary in size. But one of the things is they've had to get fatter. I think the average American has put on just over two stone um, in the last 20 years, 25 years. Okay. And so the dummies have had to follow suit. Yeah. 28 pounds. <laughs> 28 pounds, sorry. 28 pounds. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, that's not much weight okay. to put on over 25 years. You're actually keeping quite fit if that's all you put on in that period. <laughs> you don't gradually put on more and more weight each year. That's not how it's... That's not like a uh, healthy way. Sorry, as a man in his 40s, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got something that you might like, Dan. Oh, yeah? There is a theory that crash test dummies explain the Roswell landings. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. What? So... This is a claim that was made about crash test dummies that people might have mistaken crash test dummies being used in parachute drops if you're testing a parachute and you want to see how hard you know, someone hits the ground with that particular parachute. Yeah. So maybe the Air Force were collecting in crash test dummies and mistook them for alien bodies being collected in. Right. Because that's where a lot of military testing might happen. And these were six foot long things and they were hairless and they were made of a weird rubbery substance. Yeah, yeah. So wow. it's not a widely adhered to theory. No. It's obviously aliens, but and I can't it's believe still... It. Yeah. I can't believe you thought that would excite me. What I wanted you to say is, aliens are real. That's the... <laughs> um, speaking of theories and adhering, <laughs> this okay. is a oh, wow. Tenuous, very tenuous. Let's um, go with it. Google has invented a new thing, which is human flypaper. And the idea is, if you have a self-driving car, you put this flypaper on the front of your car. Mm. And one of the problems, or one of the main ways that people get injured if they get hit by cars, it's not even the first impact. It's where you get thrown and you end up hitting your head on the floor or stuff yeah. like that, or you get run over. And so they think that what might happen is you drive along, you hit pedestrian, instead of throwing them over, they stick to the car. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then you can slow down, and then they can just unstick themselves. There must be so many situations, though, where you're late to somewhere, and you're like, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to go, and you're on <laughs> passing cars on the highway with a dude stuck to the front. <laughs> Um, oh, I found a great uh, moose-related headline because I was looking up some moose facts as well. This is a headline from uh, South Dakota. Is it Kiloland or Keloland? All right. <laughs> no one knows, and I think it's fair to say no one here cares. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's say Kiloland news. This is a genuine local news headline in South Dakota. Moose moves from one field into another field. This is a real local news story. It goes on. Be on alert driving near the Marion Road exit on Interstate 90. A little after five Thursday night, a combine scared the moose. It's clearly just one moose involved in this whole state. Scared the moose out of one field and into another. This is the same moose that's been hanging out in the area north of southwestern Sioux Falls since Monday. <laughs> so maybe there's a reason that nobody here has been to South Dakota is all I'm trying to say. Should we move on? Let's move on to our next fact. 
Uh, it is time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that Americans used to make their slippers radioactive so they could find them in the dark. <laughs> now, yeah. I must say, probably not many Americans did this, <laughs> <laughs> but I think definitely some of them did. So there is an advert online for this um, product, um, which you could buy in the 1930s, called Undark. Okay, and it's like a paint, and it contains radium, which is can we, radio... Sorry, can we just clarify that it wasn't online in the 1940s, was it? <laughs> You're absolutely right. It wasn't online in the 1930s. It was a no. different medium back then, and yeah. it's been put online now. Got it, just checking. Um, I saw it online in yeah. the last few days. Um, but yeah, I think it was, in, it was in magazines and things like this, and it was called Undark, and it says, the advert says, does Undark really contain radium? Most assuredly. <laughs> so it's real radioactive stuff, and the whole point of it is you would put it on things so you could find them in the dark. So they said that you would put it on watches and clocks, on push buttons, on the buckles of your bedroom slippers, on house numbers, flashlights, compasses. Well, flashlights, I don't know why, because you can turn them... Well, you need to find it in the dark. You need to find it in the dark. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And basically, in the 1930s, they were putting radium on everything, no, even though not realising, perhaps, that um, it was killing people. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, they were obsessed. It was a craze. Uh, complete, yeah. And like the newspapers constantly contained it. I think um, George Bernard Shaw said the world has run raving mad on the subject of radium. And of course, there was uh, very famously the radium girls who were the people who worked in sort of uh, 19 19s. Um, and the radium girls were there and they were, had to paint radium onto clocks to make their hands glow in the dark and they would lick the paintbrushes and so they would swallow a little bit of radium every single time they did that, uh, which was extremely bad for them, it turned out. Yeah. Um, and worse still, they would paint like little messages on their teeth for their boyfriends and yeah. like, their clothes would glow in the dark so when they went out clubbing or whatever they did in the 1920s, um, they would always wear their work clothes because it meant they shined in the, in the nightclubs. They were like human glow sticks yeah. dancing yeah. in yeah, the yeah. clubs. Wow. They were pro properly with glowers in one, so it was a big scandal. By the 1920s, they started dying, um, and people realised it was probably because of all this radium. And when they exhumed their bodies years later, they were still glowing from Gosh. all this radium. Yeah. Um, it was amazing. And they'd open their cupboards in the morning, yeah, and all their clothes are just glowing. Absolutely bizarre. Yeah. And then, of course, because they were getting very sick, there were lost suits uh, and it was due to a guy called Leonard Grossman who was a lawyer who worked pro bono for the whole time and it was after eight appeals that they managed to get the, the companies to admit that they were wrong Whoa. and managed to get something back although the last one the last um, radium girl died at the age of 107 not so wow. long ago, only in the last 20 years I think. But so. she quit within a week of working there because she yes. hated the taste of the paint. Yes. And <laughs> She was counting herself lucky, age 107 in 2014. Uh, but like, they weren't to know, I suppose, and it must have been so exciting. And also uranium had the same thing when uranium then became a thing and this was this other very, very dangerous nuclear substance people got very into. There was a time when hamburgers came with free shares in uranium mines. Like a little Happy Meal, but it was a share in uranium. Really? Wow. What? Yeah. There was some, right? You know, uh, it was, is it pronounced boogie? You know, B-O-U-G-I-E, the sort of uh, things. Bougie. Bougie. Sorry. Yeah. There were radioactive bougies, which were wax-covered rods to be inserted into the penis. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know this word bougie until no. now. Is that what it is? Bougie, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a modern meaning of bougie, which is a bit, differ a bit different to that. Is that what Bougie Nights, that movie's about? Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> 
It basically is about that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Some people said that if you fed your chickens radium, then their eggs would incubate themselves. Wow. Not true. We had, uh, weirdly, you mentioned the Curies earlier. So, mm. Mary, uh, Mary Curie, um, she, she was in the news this year. She's in our book, our new book. Uh, Is she? Yeah, because someone, um, it was her birthday, and the cake arrived, surprise cake, and they opened it up, and on the cake was a drawing of Mary Curie. And uh, she was confused because she had no idea who it was. It turns out that there was a mishearing over the phone. What the parent had actually asked for was a cake of Mariah Carey. And... (laughs) (laughs) And as a result, she had this Nobel Prize winner on her cake with no idea who it was. All I want for Christmas is uranium. (laughs) (laughs) Marie Curie, uh, Pierre, her, her husband, died... Uh, in a traffic accident, and then years years later, you know, she um, she started dating again, and she had an affair with a married man, which was very scandalous at the time, and it led to this huge cause celeb. There were either two or five armed duels over this uh, affair that she had, wow. and the the wife of the man she was having the affair with, her name was Madame Longvin. She had someone break into Curie's house and steal the love letters. All of this about Mary Curie, Nobel Prize winning, you know. Yeah, yeah. And the, the letters were stolen. And then they were leaked to the press. So suddenly this is a huge story. And um, her lover, Paul Longvin, had a duel between uh, him and a journalist who'd insulted him. And uh, there, there's a letter from uh, Einstein to Mary Curie saying, don't worry about all this. This is irrelevant. Really? It's really cool. Because it was wow. just before she won the Nobel Prize. So her Nobel Prize was slightly overshadowed by this really? huge story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Three days before she was due to go and collect it, the, the story broke. And they were saying, oh, maybe don't come and collect a Nobel Prize because this is scandalous. But then Einstein wrote her a letter saying, forget all that. You've got the award. Get the award. Wow. Yeah. She used to be always called on to test the radium products. You know, you were saying at the start, James, uh, that a lot of products called themselves radioactive. But they didn't they always no radium. have it in, is that right? Yeah, they very often just pretended and then put a bit of different glow-in-the-dark stuff in it. She would be called to verify that stuff contained radium, that it like, definitely was deadly, basically. It would be like, my child's toy says it's radioactive. Can you just check, Marie Curie, that it is? <laughs> She'd be like, yep, definitely got lots of radium in it. Wow. Good luck to that kid. Wow. She actually fell on a little bit of hard times after a while and she didn't have enough radium to continue her research because radium was really, really expensive. It's, there's not much of it in the ground, so it's really hard to get. And so there was a fundraising campaign led by American women and Curie travelled to the United States and she was presented with one gram of radium by President Warren Harding in 1921. Wow, a single so gram. Okay, and cool. it, doesn't, it doesn't sound like a lot, that, right? But it was cost them $100,000 for a single gram wow. of radium. And that, at the time, in 1921, was about the average budget of a Hollywood movie. Wow. So for one gram of radium, you could make a whole movie. That's so cool. Isn't that amazing? They did, because when they were trying to refine it in the foot, like before they'd even discovered it, they were using a thing called pitch blend, which is a kind of uranium ore, yeah. and it's got, the, it's got radium in it, but it needs to be refined a lot. 
They went through seven tons of pitch blend and they ended up with one gram of radium after oh. all of that refining. That's incredible. Yeah. This is why there was a, a ballet dancer and choreographer called uh, Loie Fuller, who in 1904 created the radium dance, which was a really famous dance at the time, and she wanted all the ballerinas to be wearing head-to-toe costumes made entirely of radium. <laughs> and she was sort of mates with Marie Curie, and she wrote to her and said, can you make me a bunch of ballerinas' dresses made entirely of radium? And for, thank God, Marie Curie said, I'd absolutely love to, it sounds like a great idea, but it's just too expensive. And so she had to make do with a sort of slightly less glow-in-the-dark other material, and the ballerinas lived to see another day. <laughs> Have you heard of uh, Magic Radium Massage? No. This was no. a 30s product, which is, is curious, because if the radium girls were dying in the 1920s, then Aren't you they would still think... used a lot of radium until the sort of 40s and 50s, I think. Well, the Magic Radium Massage, this ointment, when massaged into the sex parts, <laughs> this is the advert, acts as a healthy tonic and stimulant, tending to give firmness and strength to the organs. It is especially effective for improving the circulation in the genital organs when they feel cold, clammy, and lifeless. <laughs> Soon, this, so, I mean, that is, that is useful if you need to get up to go to the toilet in the night. You just follow your cock. <laughs> <laughs> Where did I leave that penis? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's time to move on to our final fact of the show, and that is Chazinski. My fact this week is that the man who introduced chewing gum to the world had already been president of Mexico 11 times. It's crazy. It's a very strange career trajectory. Uh, this, is, this is, of course, probably the most famous, maybe the most famous Mexican ever, General Santa Anna, uh, in the 19th century. He was president constantly. Um, he's got a bad, he's sort of hated in three different very specific places. So the US hate him, the Mexicans hate him, and Texans hate him. And I know Texas is part of the US, but some people say that they don't, they pretend they aren't. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, he's, uh, so he was at the Battle of Alamo, and he was disgraced there because he was very, very brutal, and then that was what led to the cries of Remember the Alamo, which led to um, him, him and his troops being defeated at Jacinta later. But anyway, he had uh, lots of sort of military defeats, and somehow they kept on making him president again. He kept on being exiled from the country, and when he was finally exiled from Mexico permanently in 1869, he went to New Jersey, and all he brought with him... <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not the joke. <laughs> the joke is not that's what you do when you hit rock bottom. <laughs> wow, you can just say New Jersey and I go and feel It's good to know. Uh, so he went to New Jersey and he brought with him as insurance a ton of this chickle gum, which they all chewed in Mexico. And the bloke he was living with said, oh, what's that gum? Can I try and make something out of it? I'm going to try and sell it. And he tried to make sort of tires out of it and toys out of it and uh, masks and Wellington boots. Uh, none of it stuck, as it were. And so eventually he saw Santa Ana chewing it one day. And so he thought, OK, sod it, I'll try and sell it to people and tell them to chew on it. And they loved it. And their yeah. chewing gum was born, or popularised at least, mm. in the amazing. West. He, is, he was quite amazing, wasn't he, Santa Ana? So He's a crazy guy. After the independence from Spain in 1821, basically a whole country just kept having these coups and counter-coups and whatever. And he just kept kept reinventing himself to whoever was taking over. He said, oh, I'm with these guys. Mm, and yeah. then they would make him president. So at one stage, he, was he started <laughs> off as conservative, and then he became liberal, then he became a Democrat, and then he became a dictator. And all those times, <laughs> each time, he became the president. Wow. And 
by way of um, comparison, Donald Trump started off as a Republican, became a member of the Independence Party, then was a Democrat, yeah. and then was a Republican again. Hasn't been a dictator. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, he's like, he wow. just kept reinventing himself so he could get the power. Yeah. It's really amazing. That's that, interesting. He didn't go to either of his own weddings. <laughs> he, he just, he couldn't be bothered to turn up, basically, or he was traveling or busy or whatever, so he just deputized someone by... Can I just say, yeah. Andy, you are about to get married. Certainly am. It doesn't work that way oh. anymore. <laughs> Um, he, so he married twice, mostly for, we think, for money both times, because the, the women he was marrying had very large estates, and he was in need of cash. Um, so the first, the first wedding he, he had, he empowered his father-in-law to be as his proxy. Oh. So basically, <laughs> her, her dad would walk her, he you know, gave, up the he aisle. He gave her away to himself. Basically, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wow. Do we know if he sort of jumped around the other side of her at the crucial moment? <laughs> yeah. yeah, just put a different hat on. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> he actually lost Texas to the US, possibly because he was having sex in a tent. No. Really? So this is the tale is that at the Battle of Jacinto, he was distracted by a Texan woman who, so it was a ploy on her part. She's sort of this folk hero. Um, and this is reported at the time by an English journalist. Um, and apparently this Texan woman snuck into his tent and seduced him and shagged away. And then he lost the battle while he was in the tent, not in charge of his troops, and then had to leg it. How long was that sex session that he well, lost? <laughs> the, the, battle, the battle famously only took 18 minutes. So. Yeah. <laughs> He always That's not too bad in, <laughs> in my house. <laughs> my wife will be going, hear that? 18 minutes. He can do 18 minutes. Dad, you could always use a proxy if you have to. <laughs> Sorry, it's okay, honey. Your dad's on his way over. Out. <laughs> um, was, did he still have his leg at the time that that happened? He he did have his original legs at okay. that time, yeah. Because he, he, one of the other things he was famous for was losing a leg uh, in a conflict called the Pastry War, which was against French forces who had invaded Mexico. Uh, I think that's why it's called that. So um, he was wounded and he had his leg amputated. And then four years later, as a kind of political move, he, he had it disinterred and he held a state funeral for his leg. So he got to attend, and it was a really fancy funeral. So the leg got taken to the capital in a coach, and there was a beautiful monument constructed, and there was cannon fire, and poems were read, and then the leg was eventually wow. reburied. Yeah. yeah. How but shit it, is that for his wife, that he shows up to a funeral for his leg, but not <laughs> to his own wedding? That's bad. But bad. then on the bright side for her, two years after he'd done that, it was exhumed again by his opponents and dragged through the streets with people <laughs> chanting, death to the cripple. So, yeah, he was obsessed with this leg. He used to um, sort of, like, before he'd even done the big state funeral, he used to carry it around, waving it above him in parades. Really? And uh, he even, he gave it two funerals. He gave it a small funeral on his little hacienda before the big one, when it first got lost. He was always reminding people, like one of these really annoying, like you couldn't, he'd always let it, let it drop into conversation. Uh, wow. But the pastry war, do you know why it was, why it was called that specifically? I, no, I don't. It's, it is related to the French thing, but it's specifically mm. because there was one French pastry cafe in Mexico and it was owed a big debt by the government and it wasn't being paid. And so this pastry chef called the French government and said, Mexico owes me all this money, it's not paying. And so it got a bit out of hand and war happened. <laughs> oh, man. 
<laughs> because of that. It, the French ended up really overreacting, so they... Uh, <laughs> yeah, they he rang them up and said, they owe me an arm and a leg, and then... <laughs> They negotiated down to half of that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, you can visit his leg in Illinois. Yes. Well, his fake leg. It's in a museum in Illinois. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, there's, there's like a chicken dinner there as well, because supposedly he was eating chicken at the time, so it sort of like sets the scene. So when you of... say his fake leg, you mean this prosthesis? Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, someone galloped off away when he wasn't looking, took his leg, and it's now in Illinois. It's been there for years. Yes, yeah. so this was another fight. This was a later battle that he actually lost, wasn't it? Yeah. When he had the prosthetic leg, and as you say, he was eating a chicken dinner in his tent, and... Um, the battle was lost again. <laughs> he really lingered over it. He spent about 20 minutes eating the he chicken did. dinner. Yeah. Disaster. This um, guy needs to stay out of tents. This is... <laughs> I always think it's really weird, though, because in that thing where the soldiers came along and they took his leg and they also took $18,000 and the chicken dinner, but everyone always talks about the chicken dinner. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. It's so weird. And yeah. then he got another leg, didn't he? He got a peg leg. Yeah. Um, so just a, a piece of wood for a prosthesis, and then that got stolen as well. <gasps> oh, yeah, right. it got stolen and was reportedly later used by Lieutenant Abner Doubleday as a baseball bat. <laughs> wow. Hey, um, so this fact was also about the fact that he introduced chewing gum to the world. Oh, yeah. yes. Can I can I mention a couple of chewing yeah, gum yeah, things yeah. I found? Um, so chewing gum, obviously we had chewing gum that was around for a while, and then bubble gum arrived, and bubble gum was invented in Philadelphia. Yeah. How cool is that? Did you guys know that? Probably. You didn't know that? Okay, so bubblegum was invented here. It was by um, a guy called Frank H. Fleer, although he didn't invent bubblegum itself. So Double Bubble was the first ever bubblegum that came out. You guys... Yeah. There was no bubble before... No, chewing gum was just chewed, and then he was like, let's... let's but he went big. straight to the double, double. There's bubble. no single bubble chewing gum. Oh, I see. Gum. Well, no, no. There was a prototype, which, which didn't work. Bubble. Yeah. There we are. So he's not the inventor of double bubble. He is the inventor of its prototype, blibber blubber. <laughs> Stop. R- absolutely true. Blibber blubber was the original bubble gum that he invented. But unfortunately, it, was, it didn't quite work out. So the problem was, is when you blew the bubble... no one could say it, for a start. <laughs> blubber blubber. Blubber blubber. Blubber blubber. Uh, so, yeah, so Frank H. Fleer. So the, the problem was, is that you would blow the bubble, it would pop, and it would go all over your face, but the stickiness of it was too much that you needed a solvent to actually take it <laughs> off your face. So, it came, so when he was marketing it initially, it was with this little product that would make sure that it would come off. So it didn't work out. <laughs> never sold, never made it actually to shops. Um, but instead, then someone who was working for him said, let's, let's take it differently. And that's how we have Double Bubble. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. So when was great. that? Uh, this was 1906. Okay. That he first did this, yeah. Because there, w- there was one other claimant to the invention of bubblegum who is Waldo Seaman. Who? Wow. What, what did he call his? <laughs> and it didn't go down very well. I don't, with chewing gum, make sure you never swallow. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so, Mr. Mr. Seaman was Waldo Seaman working for a Waldo tire company. Se- Where's Waldo? Which Waldo? <laughs> <laughs> That's a much more difficult and more adult version of the book, isn't it? <laughs> He's easier to spot, though. You turn the lights off, you shine the door, it glows in the dark. <laughs> oh. 
That's the best UV semen Wes Wally bubblegum joke that's ever been made. That's the only one. No. <laughs> Top ten. Anyway, he was a very serious guy who wanted to be taken seriously. His business was in making plastics and rubber and polymers, and he worked for a tyre company. And so when he made this thing that blew bubbles, the tyre company thought, well, that's a huge defect. We don't want tyres that are bubbles. Um, So stop making it. And so he had to stop making it. But interestingly, did you know that tyre manufacturers, Goodyear Tyre and Rubber, for instance, are the biggest provider of the rubber core of chewing gum today? Is it? Yeah, there's bits of tyre in it. Because it's not made out of that chickly stuff anymore. It's made out of, like, petrochemicals, basically, chewing gum, isn't it? Yeah, essentially, yeah. yeah. It's, like, made out of kind of rubber in the middle. That's amazing. So, actually, when, like, cars drive over the road, they should be able to just pick up the chewing gum and just become part of the tyre. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Eventually, you just have a massively high car. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, The ancient Greeks had chewing gum. A kind of chewing gum, yeah. So, as you say, it was popularised when it became nice, but the the ancient Greeks were going around chewing mastic gum sometimes. Mm -hmm. That was a thing. And um, it was really horrible back in the old days because it used to be made with paraffin. So it's very bitter and very, you know, brittle and unwholesome. The one thing that you might do if you had some paraffin chewing gum is you'd have a plate of sugar next to you mm. and you'd just have to repeatedly take it out of your mouth, dip it in the sugar and put it back in. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, that sounds all right. No, not, not nice. <laughs> <laughs> I've explained it wrong. Um, <laughs> um, we're going to have to move on in oh, a second. Can I, so one more thing about chewing gum. Yeah, the University of Copenhagen is currently working on fertility chewing gum. So Is this it, another Waldo Seaman invention? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the second best Waldo Seaman bubblegum based. <laughs> um, no, it's it's for it's for women to chew so that you know where you are in your menstrual cycle. So if you okay. chew it, it reacts with the, I guess, the enzymes in your saliva, and it turns a particular colour depending on how far along you are and whether you're in the perfect time to conceive. But then do you have to keep pulling it out of your mouth and looking at it and then putting it back in again? Um, I think there's a... Well, you have to take it out at least once, yeah. <laughs> but that is cool. If it happens, that's going to be great. <laughs> um, in 1904, um, they had a big craze in America of chewing gum parties. Cool. And the idea of what you would do there is you would each guest would come along with a big pack of chewing gum, actually lots of packs, and then everyone would sit around and chew their chewing gum until it was soft, and then they put it on a plate and they would sculpt it into things. Cool. Hello. And that was the game. That's kind of yeah. fun. I thought well, you were going to say this audience that... doesn't seem to think it's much no. fun. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Philadelphia is a bit too good for that apparently. <laughs> Okay, let's wrap up. Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. Um, If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. Yep, and James. Uh, At James Harkin. And Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing. You can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. You have everything up there. There's future tour dates. There's all of our previous episodes. There's links to things like our book. And last thing to say is, guys, thank you so much. That was so much fun. We'll see you again. Good night. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.